After a chemical fire, people in Braintree, Quincy, and Weymouth say local officials need to do more to protect them. You've put all of these toxic, explosive facilities in one location that is surrounded by residential areas. It is Tuesday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in Fort Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the latest on the deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Also, expanding the use of involuntary commitment for people who are homeless and battling mental illness has become a polarizing topic for disability rights advocates and politicians. I call it a war of compassion, actually, because both sides want to do the right thing. It is 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. After yet another school shooting in America, this time in Nashville yesterday that left three children and three adults dead, President Biden says he's exhausted his presidential powers on gun control and is once again calling on Congress to act. Why in God's name do we allow these weapons of war on our streets and at our schools? According to law enforcement, the shooter of this horror had two assault weapons and a pistol. And Nashville Police Chief John Drake says the shooter, Audrey Hale, purchased seven weapons legally. There's still no word on a motive. A top federal regulator calls the failure of a California bank this month a, quote, textbook case of bank mismanagement. And Pierre Scott Horsley reports a Senate committee is exploring what went wrong at the bank and how to prevent similar problems elsewhere. Silicon Valley Bank's collapse is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, and it leaves a $20 billion dent in the government's deposit insurance fund. Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown, who chairs the Senate Banking Committee, says people are understandably frustrated by the bank's implosion and the government's rush to protect even supersized deposits of the bank's wealthy customers. Just as there are no atheists in foxholes, it appears that when there is a bank crash, there are no libertarians in the Silicon Valley. Government supervisors had repeatedly sounded warnings about the bank's risky decision-making, but the problems were not corrected until it was too late, and urgent government action was needed to prevent an even wider bank run. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is facing another indictment, this time accused of conspiring to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. In 2021, China froze several trading accounts that belonged to the hedge fund that he founded. In a newly unsealed indictment, federal prosecutors allege Friedman Bankman uh, Bankman Freed rather paid over $40 million in cryptocurrencies to bribe officials to unfreeze those accounts. A hearing is scheduled later this week. The House Foreign Affairs Committee has delivered a subpoena to the State Department for a document related to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the committee wants the document by April 4th. Back in July of 2021, nearly two dozen officials working at the Kabul embassy drafted what's known as a dissent cable to raise concerns that they were not prepared for a U.S. troop withdrawal. Now that document is the subject of a dispute between the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall, and Secretary Secretary of State Antony Blinken. McCall says he would review the document in camera rather than having it physically delivered to the committee and said that State Department officials could redact the names of those who signed it. Blinken offered a briefing about the cable but said he wants to protect the integrity of the dissent channel. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A chemical fire last month at a hazardous waste treatment center in Braintree has reignited concerns about public safety in the region. There's a high concentration of industrial activity there, and activists have long called for a regional safety and evacuation plan. Local leaders now say they're on board. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. In addition to clean harbors, the Braintree-Weymouth-Quincy area is home to a natural gas compressor station, two power plants, two fuel tank farms, a chemical manufacturing facility, and a plant that makes fertilizer. Alice Arena, the president of a local environmental group, calls the area a circle of danger. You've put all of these toxic, explosive facilities in one location that is surrounded by residential areas. Arena says the area needs a regional safety plan. In the event of an evacuation, there are limited roadways in and out, she says. In the wake of the fire, local leaders are now also calling for regional emergency planning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Senator Elizabeth Warren says stricter financial regulations are needed to prevent future bank failures. The Massachusetts Democrats spoke at a Senate hearing today featuring testimony from financial regulators with the Federal Reserve. The regulators said the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was a result of mismanagement. Warren says the Fed must improve its oversight. Under current law, the Federal Reserve has the discretion to apply stronger prudential standards on banks with assets between 100 billion and 250 billion, exactly the size of Silicon Valley Bank. That authority is not being used right now. The nation's top banking regulator testified the Federal Reserve is considering whether stronger banking rules are needed. Massachusetts schools still have nearly $1.5 billion in unspent aid. The federal government sent them during the pandemic. An official with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education said today that's just over half of the emergency education aid the state received from Washington. About $215 million of the remaining funds must be spent by September 30th. The rest of the money needs to be used before October of next year. It is 43 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of showers tonight, then tomorrow a sunny Wednesday. Highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Police have now released body camera footage of yesterday's attack on a Nashville elementary school. The video shows officers' encounter with the shooter, who killed three children and three adults at the Covenant School. Here with the latest in the investigation is Chaz Sisk, senior editor with Nashville member station WPLN. Chaz, welcome. Thank you. Can you describe a bit more of what the body cam footage shows and what it tells us about the shooting? Yeah, uh, so the body camera footage, which was released this morning, it's very harrowing, and it shows about a three-minute encounter from the time that officers entered the building until the assailant was killed. I think one of the things that it shows clearly is that the assailant was either shot by officers or at least died during the encounter in the hallway, which took place on the second floor. And what you see in this video is officers very quickly and methodically going from classroom to classroom. It's also important what you don't see, which is children in any of the rooms as police are searching the building, which probably speaks to how well-drilled the school 
school was and what to do during a school shooting. Also, you see the teachers uh, interacting with officers, and they seem to be very well prepared. They're able to give officers, as they arrive, clear instructions on where the children are and to share some information on where the assailant might be. Have we learned any more about the assailant's motive? Uh, You know, police say they have some documents and maps that lay out the plan, but they really aren't sure what the motive is, or at least they're they're not willing to say what that is. Uh, What we do know is that the suspect was a 28-year-old named Audrey Hale. Uh, Hale is a former student of the school, and uh, yesterday the police searched Hale's family home, which was about three miles from the school. Police are saying today that what they found was that Hale had a total of seven weapons and that they were all legally obtained from five gun stores in Nashville. They also say that Hale's family thought thought that Hale shouldn't have any guns, um, but they knew that Hale had one, and that three of those guns were used in the shooting, and the others might have been hidden in the home. I know that there have been some vigils and uh, also demonstrations. How is the community reacting? Well, a handful of churches did open their doors last night for community vigils. It's worth noting that the Green Hills neighborhood, which is the part of Nashville where this happened, it's a major center for religious life in Nashville. Uh, There are a lot of churches with Christian schools attached to them in this part of town. I I do expect there'll be more community vigils over the next few days. But, you know, the bigger reaction appears to be political. This is a state where Republicans have been rolling back gun laws pretty aggressively. And ever since Sandy Hook a decade ago, uh, the push has been to make guns more available. So, you know, one of the first public gatherings that we've seen in reaction to the shooting was actually organized by Moms Demand Action, which uh, held, a capi- held a rally at the Capitol earlier today. What kind of a civilization does not defend their children? I'm worried that this is going to be another one of those news cycles where everybody is very upset for a couple of days until the next big thing happens. So that was Heidi Campbell. She's a state senator who represents the area, speaking in favor of some tighter gun laws. And uh, also, you're seeing something similar from uh, Nashville's music community. A lot of them are speaking out, some of them noting that their own children attend nearby schools. Chaz, who, who were the victims? Have we learned anything more about them? Uh, what we know about the victims, again, is that there, there were three children. All of them are believed to be age nine. We now know that one was the daughter of the lead minister of the church that's attached to Covenant School. And we also know that the adult victims were the head of the school, a custodian who worked there, and a substitute teacher. I understand that you live uh, in this neighborhood. What has it been like covering this story? Uh, yeah, it's been, I mean, very sobering to see these images uh, where, you, where you live and, and are every day. And I've lived in Green Hills for 16 years. And, you know, my own kids went to a preschool at one of the churches in the area. And I, I'd say this because I think it's important to understand how Nashville functions. This illustrates that, you know, it's a big city, but it very much works like a small town. And so uh, if people don't know someone directly impacted by the shooting, they very likely know someone who does. And uh, we've already heard from a lot of those people uh, here at WPLN who have personal connections to the victims. And one thing that they're talking about is just how closely connected this school is uh, with the state's political leaders. And uh, I have to wonder whether that's had an impact on the conversation about guns going forward. All right. I've been speaking with Chaz Sisk with WPLN in Nashville. Uh, Chaz, thank you. Thank you. The Ukrainian army continues to conscript thousands of new troops to replace heavy losses on the battlefield. One thing those new soldiers need? Good training. Some retired foreign military members are volunteering to teach fighting skills, but they say they need a lot more time to prepare these troops for the front lines. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Ukraine's Donbass region. 
There are about 15 border force soldiers basically lying on the ground, this snow-covered field, and they're learning how to cock and fire their weapons, fortunately with no bullets in them at the moment. Hello, I'm Magnus. I'm an instructor from Sweden. Magnus X served as a lieutenant in the Swedish army. He spent months here training Ukrainian troops. As the conscripts stand in line, X shows each one how to hold an AK-47. Try to put this here, here, on here, like this. Can I borrow? So he's showing him how to put it on his shoulder and get his eye down right on the sight. X teaches through humor. He twists his body like a pretzel, aiming the gun in various directions to show soldiers what they shouldn't do. Some of the conscripts can't help but laugh. So funny, so funny, yeah. But the situation here, it's no joke. For these conscripts, this is their seventh day as soldiers. Before, they worked as electricians, welders, and construction workers. Volodymyr, he doesn't want to give his full name, is 36 years old and worked in a blast furnace. He finds Magnus' instruction entertaining and useful. Absolutely. You learn how to handle a gun, how to assemble it, disassemble it, to understand how it operates, how it shoots. Have you worked with guns before? No, never. When was the first time you picked up a rifle? Yesterday. Ek has just one day with Volodymyr and his fellow conscripts. He won't even have the opportunity to do something very basic, show them how to adjust the sights to their rifles so they can aim accurately. It's called zeroing a gun. They did not want to zero the guns. Not enough time? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some other time. Lieutenant Colonel Vyacheslav Andrusenko is deputy head of combat training for Ukraine's border force. He says these conscripts will get about 17 days of instruction. By comparison, basic training in the U.S. Army is 10 weeks. So I ask him, if you were able to, how long would you give them training? I believe in order to be efficient so they can do their tasks, they all need at least 35 days. How do you feel? How do I feel? <laughs> well, I'd say I'm concerned. I'm a bit concerned. I just hope that everything we give them, they will use in battle, and it will help them to do their tasks to the maximum potential. Kelly Kilhoffer is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. On a couple of occasions, he says he was able to get three to four weeks with soldiers. Far more often, he got three to five days. Kilhoffer, who's now back in the U.S., raised concerns. I was talking to the Ukrainian officer. I'm like, look, if we had more time, these guys would last longer. And he said, well, they got three days training, and they've learned, they've adapted, and they're doing great. And I said, well, yeah, but you're talking to the alive ones. I said, you're not talking to the dead ones. One of the dead ones was a gung-ho Ukrainian graphic artist turned soldier named Ed. His passing hit Kilhoffer hard, as well as Kilhoffer's training team, which included Magnus Eck and a retired U.S. Marine staff sergeant named Stan. Ed was a favorite. Really funny guy. Always a big smile. Trained and trained and trained. He'd load up extra magazines. He'd practice shooting. And, and his total duration of military service was less than two weeks, from conscription to death. I have him on signal. His phone is done. Like, uh, I used to send him messages. Sorry, I'm like tearing. That was Stan, referring to the encrypted messaging app Signal, which is how he stayed in touch with Ed. Stan says Ed died on his first mission, an assault on a Russian trench line that went wrong. Minefield, lost both legs. They couldn't retrieve him, and he's still out there to this day. And, and this really hurts the most that they said that they heard him. They still heard him. 
The foreign volunteers say they come here for various reasons. Kilhoffer says he saw Russia as a bully and was appalled by the human rights abuses. Eck wanted to put his skills to use from a decade as an instructor in Sweden. And then there's another team member, Shannon Taylor. She's a 25-year-old trauma nurse from New Zealand who provides battlefield first aid training. She was inspired by a TV show about combat nurses in World War I. It's when these five nurses found like an abandoned building and they developed it into a field hospital and they just treated all the wounded soldiers. And since then, like I've always just wanted to do that. Stan, who said he didn't want to use his full name for privacy reasons, sees himself as something of a crusader. He also says there's a common thread among those drawn to this war. Atonement, a lot of people are escaping their past, escaping supposedly sins that they think they have the chance to, I guess, uh, redo and make the cosmos good again. Stan did not elaborate. Back at the training range, a group of soldiers huddle around Taylor, kneeling in the snow, showing them how to patch an abdominal wound. Do not apply pressure. You just want to apply the wetness to the abdominal area wrap it around just to keep it in place. With the abdominal wounds, you want to make sure you don't push anything, intestines, nothing back inside. Speaking in the team's apartment, Taylor says the training is paying off. One soldier she trained told her he was able to treat two others in the field. One had suffered a head wound, the other lost half his hand. He just walked in the door and gave me a massive hug and said that, yeah, he was able to use those skills and from the time that I had spent with him, to rescue these two guys, that just made it all worth it. Taylor had planned to fly back to New Zealand in January, but she's delayed her return. She says she wants to stay in Ukraine as long as she can. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kramatorsk. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418. And coming up in about 10 minutes, investigators are trying to determine what caused a deadly fire in a migrant processing center in Mexico. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club, waterstonelexington.com. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 37 points at 32,394. The Nasdaq ended the day on the losing side, down 52 points at 11,716. The S&P 500 closed down six points at 3,971. In business news, the Dorchester site where the Boston Globe headquarters once stood could soon be home to a life sciences complex. Beacon Capital Partners has submitted the proposal to the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The six-story complex would cover over 300,000 square feet and would be built on the site of a large parking lot near Route 93. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com And Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning. April 6th to 16th, bostonballet.org.
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It is 43 degrees in Boston with some isolated showers tonight and lows in the low 30s. Plenty of sunshine tomorrow, Wednesday's highs reaching the low 50s. Tomorrow night, some showers likely. Thursday, sunny skies and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When it comes to mental illness, the problem of when to treat people who don't know they need treatment or people who resist treatment, it's a tough one. For decades now, compelling people into care, something called involuntary commitment, has been de-emphasized as an option and considered only as a last resort. The thinking is that the patient should have autonomy and participate in their care. But now, democratic states such as Oregon and California are reconsidering their approaches as mental health, the drug epidemic, and also homelessness become increasingly political problems. Joining us now to talk about this more are April Domboski of member station KQED in San Francisco and Amelia Templeton with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, April, I want to start with California, you know, a heavily Democratic state that over time has had this strong streak of medical autonomy. Their approach to mental illness is changing now. Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature are pushing forward with some policies that might be considered tougher to some people. Can you tell us more about what's going on here? Yeah, the attention to this has really been rooted in homelessness, which is a huge problem in California. Half of the unsheltered population in the country lives here. And even though only a quarter or a third of those folks have a serious mental illness, that is where we're seeing a lot of policy proposals being directed. So this year, the state is rolling out something called care courts. Mm -hmm. This is where a family member or a doctor can refer someone who has a psychotic illness to court, and a judge will draw up a care plan that the person is strongly encouraged to accept. Another recent proposal is to expand who qualifies for involuntary commitment. One doctor told me about a patient who's homeless who has both diabetes and schizophrenia, and he keeps cycling in and out of the emergency room because he's not taking his diabetes medication. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's not taking his antipsychotic medication. So mm-hmm. right now, doctors' hands are tied with a patient like this because yeah. being unable to take care of your own medical needs is not a reason that doctors can intervene under the current law. And that is something that they want to change. And what's been the reaction so far to these proposals? Both of them have been hugely controversial. I call it a war of compassion, actually, because both sides want to do the right thing. On one side, you've got disability rights groups saying forcing people into treatment against their will is a violation of their civil rights. You know, locking people up just for being sick, that's not compassionate. 
But on the other side, you've got families and doctors who say, well, what about people's right to medical care? You know, leaving someone lying on the street unable to care for themselves? That's not compassionate either. Right. So here's how Teresa Pesquini puts it. Her son has schizophrenia, and she says the problem is doctors can only step in after a tragedy has occurred. We will no longer settle for the status quo that has forced too many of our loved ones to die with their rights on. I, I see the conflict over what values ultimately should predominate when you're talking about severely mentally ill people. And I'm wondering when you're looking at a value like compassion in Oregon, Amelia, how does that value play out in this debate? Well, there's absolutely a parallel debate here over what the compassionate approach is and whether we've drawn the line in the right place for civil commitment. But the politics are a bit different. Portland's mayor, who is a moderate Democrat, has talked about loosening the criteria for civil commitment in interviews with national media. And also it's a talking point he brings up in meetings with downtown businesses that are really upset about homelessness. But in Oregon, it's really just talk. Democrats in the state legislature have not embraced the idea. Republicans have introduced several bills that would expand who could be forced into treatment. But they're very much in the minority, and the bills are widely considered dead on arrival. And, and why is that? Why is changing civil commitment such a non-starter in Oregon, where, like in California, they're honestly considering changing it? I think a few things are still different here. First, the power to force a civil commitment in Oregon is very narrow but maybe not quite as narrow as in California. So to take one of April's examples, in Oregon, a person who is not taking diabetes medication due to psychosis, that person could be successfully civilly committed. The legislature made a small change in 2015 that makes those cases a little easier to pursue. But there's real resistance to going further. And the biggest issue by far is treatment capacity for mental illness and substance use disorders. There's just limited political interest in forcing more people into treatment when the system can barely handle the patients it has right now. Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? Well, Oregon is actually being sued by three of the largest hospital systems in the state over its failure to find placements for civilly committed patients. Because otherwise what happens is these patients are getting stuck in hospitals sometimes for months. The state has two dedicated psychiatric hospitals with about 600 beds total. And over the last decade, more of those beds have been needed for people who are in county jails, who are too mentally ill to understand the charges against them. So the result is that most civilly committed patients are denied a bed at the state hospital. And then there's no community beds either, like sending someone to a nursing home or an adult foster home or a residential treatment facility. Those beds were in really short supply already. Mm -hmm. And then in Oregon, the pandemic just gutted those places. So in Portland, for example, one of the nursing homes that suffered one of the very first devastating COVID outbreaks was a place the state had been relying on to place psychiatric patients. 28 people died and it was shut down permanently. Mm. Well, April, is this capacity problem, this question of where do you even send people for treatment, is that a real concern in California, too? It's a huge concern and a, a huge problem. Opponents of these measures are pointing out we already don't have enough treatment beds or mental health clinicians for the folks who are voluntarily asking for treatment. And then proponents of the reforms are saying, well, you know, passing these laws will put a spotlight on this and it will force a fix. So that remains to be seen. But 
The bigger capacity question here is really one of housing. Advocates will say homelessness is a problem caused by a lack of affordable housing, not mental illness. One doctor told me it's like musical chairs. If you have nine chairs and 10 kids, the kid with a broken leg is going to be the one left without a chair. Well, if you don't have enough housing, it's folks with mental illness who are most likely to have trouble competing in a market of scarcity. UCSF Dr. Margot Cushell told me the solution is more housing, not involuntary treatment. If you try to fix the problem of homelessness by tinkering with the healthcare system, we're not going to get anywhere. For the record, the same California lawmakers who are backing these new mental health reforms are also backing ways to increase the housing supply. I mean, we're talking about two states where the rents have risen so much faster than people's incomes. And that is a gap that's worse for people who are living on disability income, which can include people with mental illnesses. Here in Oregon, the new governor, Tina Kotek, says housing is her top priority. And Oregon is trying something really novel. It's the first state in the nation that will use Medicaid money to pay for things like rental assistance. So starting next year, if you're homeless and Medicaid is paying for your substance use treatment or other mental health issue, it might also pay for your housing. That was Amelia Templeton with Oregon Public Broadcasting and April Domboski with KQED in San Francisco. Both of them are part of NPR's health reporting partnership with Kaiser Health News. Thank you both so much. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429. And coming up in about 20 minutes, WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports on the call from residents of Braintree, Quincy, and Weymouth for local officials to do more to protect them. A chemical fire last month intensified the demand for better emergency safety planning. It is 43 degrees in Boston with isolated showers tonight. Tomorrow, sunny. Highs in the low 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Health and Wellness Spring Expo in Waltham this Sunday, featuring massage, acupuncture, and other mini treatments. Learn more at healthandwellnessshow.net. And Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See available menus and order online at volantefarms.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Police say the Nashville school shooter legally bought seven firearms in recent years and hid them before yesterday's attack at a private Christian school that left three nine-year-olds and three adults, including the school administrator, dead. Nashville Police Chief John Drake told reporters today that the shooter, Audrey Hale, didn't appear to target anyone specifically and was a former student at the Covenant School. She had been hiding uh, several weapons uh, within the house. We also don't have a motive uh, at this time. Uh, We feel that uh, the students that were targeted were randomly targeted. There was not any particular uh, student uh, that they were, uh, that she was looking for at the time of the incident. 
Chief Drake says Hale was not on their radar before the attack, but was under a doctor's care for an undisclosed emotional disorder. A new charge has been unsealed against Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. NPR's David Gura tells us Bankman-Fried is accused of conspiring to bribe one or more Chinese government officials. This is the 13th charge Sam Bankman-Fried faces related to the spectacular collapse of FTX late last year. He's accused of conspiring to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Back in 2021, China had frozen several trading accounts that belonged to the hedge fund Bankman-Fried founded. In a newly unsealed indictment, federal prosecutors allege Bankman-Fried caused a bribe payment of about $40 million in cryptocurrency to unfreeze those accounts. And they say he authorized the transfer of tens of millions more. A hearing is scheduled to take place on Thursday. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow down one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR. In New York City, actor Jonathan Majors has been arraigned on several charges that he assaulted and harassed a woman last Saturday. NPR's Anastasia Siokas tells us Majors is currently starring in the films Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and Creed III. In a statement to NPR, Major's representative said, quote, He has done nothing wrong. We look forward to clearing his name. Major's attorney, Priya Chowdhury, has told multiple media outlets that forthcoming video and witness statements will prove Major's innocence. In a statement to NPR, Chowdhury claims that the woman has taken back her allegations in written statements and that Major's called 911 himself over concerns for her mental health. Nevertheless, the Army has pulled a marketing campaign featuring majors, which had been released at the start of the NCAA March Madness College Basketball Tournament. Anastasia Tsoukas, NBR News, New York. A federal judge has ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify before a grand jury in the federal investigation and efforts by then-President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election results. Pence and his attorneys had cited constitutional grounds in challenging the subpoena. He was presiding over a joint session of Congress to certify the vote when a mob of Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is championing her championing her proposed tax relief and reform package. She testified at the State House today before the Joint Committee on Revenue. Healey says her goal involves making Massachusetts more affordable for residents and more competitive for business. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. Healey's plan includes a tax credit for parents and caregivers of $600 per dependent. It also provides relief for seniors and renters in Massachusetts. The governor says too many residents are struggling with the high cost of living. Unable to pay rent, unable to, to think about a down payment, unable to afford childcare, gas, groceries. It's such a challenge for so many across our state. Healy's tax package would also lower the state's short-term capital gains tax to 5% and triple the estate tax threshold to $3 million. Critics, including the Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition, say those proposals favor the ultra-rich and would put the state at risk for huge budget cuts in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 
Beginning in May, the Massachusetts Health Connector will start publishing a dashboard with information about residents who are losing their health coverage. The dashboard will include demographic information and information about where residents live and why they lost their coverage. The state expects more than 300,000 people will get kicked off MassHealth in the coming months as a result of changes to pandemic-era health coverage rules. MassHealth says it will be able to help people find other subsidized health insurance. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is reintroducing legislation that would affirm the U.S. role in protecting and promoting LGBTQI rights around the globe. The bill would make permanent the U.S. Office of the Special Envoy for the Human Rights of LGBTQI plus persons. The bottom line here is that no one in any country should be penalized for who they are or who they love. Markey says too many people are being targeted internationally and in the U.S. on the basis of their sexuality or gender identities. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. It is 43 degrees in Boston, some isolated showers tonight and lows dropping to the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow, Wednesday's highs in the low 50s. Tomorrow night, some showers likely, and then Thursday, sunny, highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. That was the sound of protesters in Mexico today calling for justice and also for changes after a deadly fire swept through a migrant processing center in Ciudad Juarez, just across the border from El Paso, Texas. More than three dozen people died. Mexican officials said migrants inside the center caused the fire by igniting a mattress. But there is some skepticism about that from some who were outside waiting to hear if their family and friends survived. Member station KTEP's Angela Corchega is in Ciudad Juarez, near the Burns Center, and joins us now. Hi, Angela. Hi, Adrian. Uh, tell us what we know so far. Well, I was outside that migrant processing center that, with a big burned-out front door, um, and people were temporarily being held there before they are supposed to be either released to await immigration proceedings or deported. And the fire started last night around 10 p.m. our time, mountain time. Uh, there were about 100 people inside, and human rights workers at the scene of the vigil and protests said that at least 41 people had died in that fire. And a small crowd of migrants held a vigil with candles and flowers at, at, outside the gates of the center where they were demanding justice and answers. They want to know exactly what happened, and they also want word about who died in that fire. What do we know about the migrants who were being held at this center? 
While Mexican authorities have not given an exact breakdown of nationalities, Mexico's president during a morning press conference said most were Central Americans, but migrants I spoke to waiting outside the uh, processing center said the friends or loved ones that they, who they were looking for were mostly from Venezuela. And most had only been there a day or two after being rounded up on the streets of Juarez. And like Juliana Lopez, her friend had been taken into custody and had just been there overnight. And she was uh, looking for that friend, very desperate to hear from him. No nos han dicho absolutamente nada, si está vivo, está muerto. Queremos saber algo. Queremos justicia, mejor dicho, justicia lo que queremos nosotros. Porque no, son, no somos animales. Lopez says that she has not been able to get any information about whether her friend is dead or alive, and she wants justice because, as she put it, they are not animals. And she went on to say migrants also bleed and have beating hearts. And she's in Juarez with her husband and baby, hoping to cross into the U U.S. to apply for asylum. Well, we've heard that those being held at this center were frustrated by some of the conditions there. Uh, what were people telling you at the center today about this? Well, people outside uh, the migrants gathered there said they were frustrated uh, with being locked up in that processing center. Uh, they were upset, uh, the, the people who were there being held overnight, that they were going to be deported by Mexico. And migrants on the scene who had been inside said that it was often crowded and poorly ventilated. And they questioned why those on duty did not help migrants escape, but left them inside locked up. Officials have said the mattresses migrants set on fire in protest were blocking the door, and many of those inside um, suffered smoke inhalation. Firefighters finally arrived on the scene and had to break down another entrance to rescue the people inside. What can you tell us, Angela, about how U.S. immigration policy has, has contributed to the situation that we're seeing along the border right now? Well, U.S. asylum, uh, well, immigration policy, and especially uh, a lack of ability to apply for asylum, has kept many migrants out of the U.S. and stuck in Mexico, often in very difficult and dangerous conditions, while waiting to see if they can get an appointment. And many are using that new CBP-1 app set up by the U.S. that's supposed to make it a much simpler and safer situation, but there's growing frustration. I heard from many people today about not being able to get an appointment through the app. Now, U.S. U.S. officials have blamed poor Wi-Fi in Mexico and high demand for problems with that CBP-1 app. And, and that's, you're hearing from Diana Rodriguez, who was one of the people, one of the human rights workers leading that protest, and she was demanding, as were others, that Mexico's Migration Institute uh, director resign, and they're calling for accountability. They want to know what happened, how so many people died, okay. and they want more humane treatment and better policies to protect migrants. That's Angela Cocherga of member station KTEP. Angela, thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Taiwan and China have long been locked in a fight for diplomatic recognition, and now Honduras has dealt Taiwan a blow, newly aligning itself with China. Taiwan's lost recognition from nine countries in the last eight years, in large part because China is aggressively courting the Asian island's few remaining partners. And NPR's Emily Fang is in Taipei and joins us now to explain. Welcome. Hello. So, Emily, what is behind this decision by Honduras to switch relations? Well, if you ask Taiwan, it was all about money. Here's Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu. 
He's saying here to reporters that Honduras demanded what he called a high price to maintain relations, and Taiwan does not compete in checkbook diplomacy with China, is what he said. In total, Wu, the foreign minister, claims Honduras wanted 2.4 billion U.S. dollars for a hospital, a dam, and help with paying back loans, a sum that Honduras, by the way, has confirmed. And Wu also alleged Beijing was giving high sums to Honduran officials to sway allegiances. China has denied all of this, but either way, this is still a really big blow for Taiwan because it fits a broader pattern in that China has been really successful in diplomatically isolating Taiwan, snatching away nearly half of its remaining partners in the last eight years through a combination of economic incentives and lobbying, especially among island nations in the Pacific, but in this case in Central America. Okay, give us some of the backstory here. Why do Beijing and Taipei compete so hard for these countries' recognition? It stems from a civil war going back more than 70 years ago, and that's led to something that Beijing calls the One China Principle, that there's this one country called China, and it's Beijing, not Taipei, that's the rightful government for that entire territory, which includes Taiwan, by the way. And that's why, to this day, China continues to say it wants to reunify Taiwan, even if that requires a military invasion. And it's why to Taiwan, the steady elimination of countries that recognize it rather than China feels so existential. And it's a reason why Taiwan is often not present at multilateral institutions. Taiwan is now down to 13 countries that recognize it, and that's a number which includes the Vatican. And I mean, that is just not that many. Exactly. And so Taiwan's foreign minister and some lawmakers in Taiwan's current ruling party are starting to say the number of formal alliances might not be so important. It's still important, but not the most important. And that they might even accept it if countries recognize both Taiwan and China. Now, that's something that China's not going to accept, but it shows a flexibility in mindset. Here's Taiwanese legislator Wang Dingyu, who is on Taiwan's Foreign Affairs and National Defense Legislative Committee this week. He says here, if like-minded countries who share our political ideals, who have democracy, want to deepen whatever relationship they have with Taiwan right now, Taiwan's going to accept that. Essentially, he's saying we want quality over quantity of relationships. And actually, in practice, this is already what is happening. Taiwan's most staunch supporters on the world stage, including the U.S., by the way, do not recognize Taiwan. They recognize China. But we've seen the U.S. and European countries send literally dozens of delegations to the island in the last year, essentially upgrading their relationship with Taiwan in all but name. And so formal recognition is important, but it's becoming slightly less important. NPR's Emily Fang in Taipei. Emily, thank you. Thanks, Juana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Advances in tech have made it easier than ever to fix certain devices, but some manufacturers still block customers from repairing products on their own. Three states have now pushed back, enacting so-called right-to-repair laws. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny has the story of one powered wheelchair user who's among the first to use that state's new law. Bruce Gogan, who's 68, has used his powered wheelchair for so long that it feels like an extension of himself. He has multiple sclerosis, which affects his speech. I just think of it as legs, as being my legs. And that means when he got a new chair last year, every detail had to be right, like the speed of its different modes. His wife, Robin Bulldog, says each one of those adjustments required a visit from an authorized technician. 
It took weeks. We would have to call someone, make an appointment, have them come out and say, gee, I'd like to change it so we're walking just a little bit faster. On one of those visits, Robin realized that the technician wasn't using some specialized device to change the settings. It was a smartphone app. She even found it on the App Store, but it was only available for authorized users. Well, I want the app. And he was like, you can't have the app, but I want the app. That would have been the end of the road, except that Robin and Bruce knew that Colorado's new wheelchair right to repair law had just gone into effect. Representative Brianna Tatone is the sponsor of the new law. Back in 2021, she originally proposed a much broader bill that would have applied to computers, cell phones, and more. That meant an uphill fight against lobbyists for everything from hospitals to tech giants. So I did not win that fight. I, I lost that fight pretty bad. So that's why the following year we paired it back to the people who really deserve to have this right. And that were the people who were in wheelchairs. The narrower wheelchair-focused law passed the legislature last year with the help of advocates like Bruce and Robin. Once it went into effect on New Year's Day, Robin called the manufacturer to demand access to their app. They were not prepared, right? which understandably were the only state, and it was day one. right? So they were not prepared. In a committee hearing last year, Tanya Hammett of National Seating and Mobility, a wheelchair vendor, warned state lawmakers that power wheelchairs are too complex for DIY jobs. This bill will allow anyone to perform complex repairs to power wheelchairs, which may lead to negative outcomes for the end user. But after Robin showed Bruce's wheelchairs maker the text of the law, they agreed, sending out two staffers to get the family set up with the internal software. They gave me the code to get into the app. We played around, we programmed. The couple have been tweaking the wheelchair's different modes, searching for the perfect speed for Robin to jog alongside Bruce or the right settings for a steep walking trail. It's wonderful. It's very wonderful. And their success could have broader effects. They've been told the manufacturer is working on a public-facing app for everyone else who wants to use it. The company didn't respond to a request for comment. Meanwhile, right-to-repair laws are gaining momentum around the country, says Kevin O'Reilly of the advocacy group PERG. We think that this first bill was the crack in the dam that we needed. That includes a new bill from Representative Tatone that guarantees similar rights for farmers to repair their increasingly high-tech tractors and other equipment. It's poised to clear the state legislature in a matter of weeks. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.50, and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear from the chair of California's Reparations Task Force. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Join TC on a Deering Thursday, April 6th at City Space for a beer fest as part of Radio Boston's Brewed in Mass series, which explores local beer culture. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. 
As of this afternoon, spring training is over for the Red Sox. In the final preseason game, the Sox lost to the Braves 7-5. Opening day is Thursday afternoon against the Orioles at Fenway Park. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Nashville Predators. The Bees will try to break the franchise record for most wins in a season. The Bruins come into the game with 57 wins, which is a tie for most wins by a Bruins team ever. And tonight, the Celtics take on the Wizards in Washington. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Isolated showers tonight. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the low 50s. WBUR supporters include the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, presenting a talk with Dr. Larry Brilliant, who helped end smallpox as a hippie doctor and whose visionary ideas have changed the world. Free to the public. Memorial Church in Cambridge on March 29th at 4. Details at wcfia.harvard.edu. For decades, Florida has been considered a swing state, but in the 2022 midterms, Republicans won and won big. The damage is long-term because for Democrats to recover, it'll probably take another generation. What does this mean for Democrats in 2024? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody. For years, environmental activists have been worried about the high concentration of potentially hazardous infrastructure in the area in and around Quincy, Braintree, and Weymouth. These concerns took on a new urgency after multiple trailers full of toxic materials caught fire last month at a hazardous waste disposal center. State officials say the chemical fire posed no significant health risk. But WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports local residents have a lot of questions. They're also demanding public officials do more to keep them safe. On the night of February 16th, Braintree Town Councilor Elizabeth Maglio was starting to get ready for bed when her phone rang. It was the mayor, Charles Kokoris. Hey, mayor, what's up? That's when he told me. Two-alarm fire, Clean Harbors. Clean Harbors is the largest hazardous waste facility in New England. It handles toxic and dangerous materials from chemical companies, hospitals, and other commercial businesses. Maglio had long worried that local officials weren't paying enough attention to public safety, That's a large part of why she ran for town council. Now, the sort of emergency she had warned others about was happening. I did exactly what you're not supposed to do, which was run out the front door because behind the house across the street, I could see the fire and the smoke. Maglio stood in the street for several minutes. She watched a big plume of smoke rise into the sky, illuminated by the flashing blue and red lights of emergency responders. And she heard two small explosions. I heard a pop, and then I heard another pop. About a half mile away, firefighters from several towns were trying to contain the chemical fire. It had started in a row of trailers parked by a loading dock. Some waste product had spontaneously combusted. Maglio says the mayor called her back about a half hour later from the Clean Harbor's property. Kokoros told her he wasn't sure what was burning, but he was going to put a note on Facebook telling people to keep their windows closed. Only relying on social media was a move he'd later regret. A lot of people in Braintree, let alone those living in nearby Quincy or Weymouth, didn't get the message. And they made that clear at a town meeting shortly after the fire. You could have called and said, we're erring on the side of caution. Please keep your windows closed. I didn't know what was happening until the next morning. I panicked. 
We walked to school the next morning and stood outside at lineup for 15 minutes. Were the kids in danger? That was Lorraine Liston, Leland Dingy, and Megan Feldposh. The Clean Harbors fire burned through barrels of waste products like paints, epoxies, oil filters, solvents. People were worried that they had breathed in harmful toxins. Many reported feeling a burning sensation in their throats or eyes the night of the fire. Others said the air smelled like melting plastic. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection maintains that the air quality during and after the Braintree fire did not pose a risk. A more recent analysis by an expert Clean Harbors hired concluded the same thing. But some residents are skeptical. Looming in the background is the recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that resulted in authorities burning off more than 100,000 gallons of toxic chemicals. Philip Landrigan directs the Global Public Health Program at Boston College, and he's an expert in how toxic chemicals affect human health. There's, there's no way I can believe that there was no air pollution generated in that fire. We, the facts speak for themselves that very, very high levels of particulates were recorded at several different air monitors in the neighborhood surrounding the site. Even short-term air pollution can be risky for people with existing health conditions. And state data show that residents of Braintree, Weymouth, and Quincy who live near clean harbors have higher rates of cancer, pediatric asthma, and cardiovascular and respiratory diseases than statewide averages. What's more, Landrigan says that during a chemical fire, the presence of small particulate matter is often an indication that other toxins are in the air too. When a chemical fire takes place, lots of different materials are thrown into the air. In the wake of the fire, some residents have demanded an independent analysis of health risks. But while they wait to learn more about potential air, soil, and water contamination, they're also looking forward. Many have called the Clean Harbors fire a near miss and say it highlights the need for better safety plans. Of course, it's going to happen again, and it could be even worse. Alice Arena lives in Weymouth and is the president of an environmental group that opposes the Weymouth Natural Gas Compressor Station. She calls the Four River Basin, the area along the water where Quincy, Braintree, and Weymouth meet, a, quote, circle of danger. In addition to Clean Harbors and the compressor, there are two power plants two fuel tank farms, a chemical manufacturing facility, and a plant that makes fertilizer. You've put all of these toxic, explosive facilities in one location that is surrounded by residential areas. For years, ARENA and other activists have called for more permanent air monitors and a regional safety and evacuation plan. Every city or town in Massachusetts is required to have an emergency response plan, But there's no plan for how officials from Braintree, Weymouth, or Quincy would work together to streamline communications or evacuate people. This is a densely populated area with only a few main roads in or out, Arena says. What happens if the Four River Bridge, which has a nasty habit of getting stuck open, isn't passable? The people who live in this area deserve better. At Braintree's most recent town meeting last week, it wasn't just activists speaking up. The mayor, the fire chief, the whole council— Everyone now says they want air monitors and a regional plan. Elizabeth Maglio, the activist who got elected to town council, says she feels vindicated. This chemical fire could be a defining moment for the region, she says, because it presents an opportunity for local and state officials to do a better job protecting residents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. 
designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Start your day with us tomorrow. The FDA is considering authorizing a second COVID-19 booster for certain at-risk groups. You'll get the who, what, when, and why when you listen again tomorrow morning here on 90.9. WBUR. Some isolated showers in Boston tonight, tomorrow, sunshine and highs in the low 50s. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all new, all electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Newly released recordings of former New England Patriots player Aaron Hernandez's final calls from prison raise new questions about his suicide. They work out perfect, man. I'm going to fight to the end to get myself home. When I sit down, it's game time, you know? You'll hear the calls obtained by WBUR in the Boston Globe. It's Tuesday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, as some states debate reparations for the descendants of slavery, many Americans oppose the idea. Researchers say one reason may involve misconceptions about the racial wealth gap. You may not have had anything to do with slavery, but your grandfather got an FHA-insured loan. My grandfather couldn't because he was black. Also, a Florida woman tried to dispute an emergency room bill, but hit a roadblock because the bill was in the name of her four-year-old child. It's 5.01. Now, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In Nashville, the grieving continues as investigators reconstruct events that led to the shooting deaths of three nine-year-olds and three adults at the Covenant School. Police are revealing today that the shooter, 28-year-old Audrey Hale, legally bought seven firearms in recent years and was under a doctor's care for an undisclosed emotional disorder. Hale was killed by responding police officers. President Biden continues to press for congressional action to take assault weapons off the streets. He spoke before a factory tour in North Carolina today, and PR's Deepa Shivaram reports. Biden said there's still more to learn about the shooting that took place at the Covenant School. But in the meantime, he says the nation owes the victims' families action on gun control. The president said he's exhausted his executive authority when it comes to acting on guns, and he urged Congress to step up. So I again call on Congress to pass the assault weapons ban. Pass it. This should not be a partisan issue. Biden said he keeps repeating his call to Congress despite the obvious gridlock on the issue because he wants people to see who isn't taking action on gun violence. 
Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Authorities in Mexico say 39 migrants have died in a fire at a shelter in Juarez. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the fire started as a protest. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says when the migrants at the shelter found out they were going to be deported, they set fire to sleeping mats. They never imagined, he said, that the fire would cause such a terrible disgrace. The president says the migrants were mostly from Central America and Venezuela. Migrants have amassed in huge numbers along the border cities in Mexico after the United States tightened asylum policies. Migrants' rights groups have complained that people are living in inhumane conditions along the border. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. A U.S. Senate staffer is recovering from an assault in Washington, D.C. Details from NPR's Claudia Grisales. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul described the attack as brutal and said a suspect had been arrested. Paul asked for prayers for the aid to see a speedy and complete recovery. He also thanked the first responders, hospital staff and police involved in the case. Paul declined to identify the aid. Instead, asking for privacy so, quote, everyone can focus on healing and recovery. The incident comes after Congress moved earlier this year to overturn a new criminal code for the Washington, D.C. area. The House Oversight Committee this week will hold its first in a series of hearings on the nation's capital with a focus on crime, safety and city management. Claudia Rizales, NPR News, Washington. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 37 points today. The Nasdaq was off 52. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. What are the biggest contributors to the wealth gap between white households and black households in the United States? A new study from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston says it is not inheritances. Here's WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. On average, white families have more than four times the wealth of black families. Economists say inheritances make up just a small percentage of that gap. Most of it comes from differences in lifetime earnings and access to retirement funds. Study co-author Jeffrey Thompson says policymakers concerned about bridging the gap should focus on expanding access to well-paying jobs. Pursuing a career that you know is going to give you a good chance at having high earnings for a a long and stable career, that's, that's the path that most people who end up accumulating wealth, that's how they get there. Thompson adds things like receiving financial help to pay for education or a down payment may also contribute to the racial wealth gap. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Polls are open until 8 o'clock tonight in Salem. Voters there are narrowing the field of mayoral candidates from 5 to 2. The special preliminary election is being held to replace Kim Driscoll. Driscoll resigned as Salem's mayor to become the state's lieutenant governor. The top two finishers in today's election will face off May 16th. The winner of that contest will finish Driscoll's term that expires in January 2026. Former Newton Mayor Seti Warren has been named director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard's Kennedy School. Warren has served as the interim director since last summer. His permanent appointment takes effect immediately. Warren says he wants to build upon President Kennedy's legacy and make sure the Institute inspires young people to get involved in public service. Massachusetts lottery scratch tickets were the big sellers in February. New data from the state show they accounted for about 71 percent of lottery sales. Scratch tickets made up nearly $364 million in sales. That's up by more than 29 percent from the same month one year ago. 
The jump in sales, along with the decrease in prizes paid out, gave the lottery a $94.3 million profit in February. It is 42 degrees in Boston with some isolated showers tonight and lows dropping to the low 30s. Sunny skies tomorrow, Wednesday's temperatures in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Josiah Williams has spent years fighting for a simple but profound idea that Black Americans deserve compensation for the more than two centuries of forced unpaid labor extracted from their ancestors. It's a debt. It's not just, you know, people just wanting money. It's not a handout. It's a debt being repaid for wrongdoing. Williams lives in Oakland, California, and he's an organizer with a nonprofit coalition that wants the government to pay reparations to the descendants of slaves. What I would like to see is for us to be able to actually rise and thrive in the country, to actually be given proper uh, opportunity. After years of advocacy, Williams feels some reparations may finally be within reach. I met him in San Diego at a public meeting of the California Reparations Task Force. So thank you all for coming and being a part of history. The state legislature set up this panel in 2020 to study how slavery's legacy has harmed black California residents. This summer, the task force will propose a reparations program for the legislature to consider. Black Californians I met at the meeting were hopeful but skeptical, like Lakeisha Milner, a high school teacher who wore a T-shirt that read, Reparations Now. And where are you from? I'm from Carson, California. The task force's recommendations are non-binding, and Milner says she is waiting to see whether the state legislature will actually adopt them. That's what I see right now, that it's just, again, being talked about, but is something going to happen? Is something going to come out of it this time? Before the recommendations make it that far, though, the task force has to answer an almost impossible question. What does the state of California owe its black residents for the damage done by slavery? in a state where slavery was never legal. It is daunting. It's a lot of work. Um, it's also, um, it's a labor of love. Camila Moore chairs the California Reparations Task Force. The group has already made some big decisions. It'll recommend, for example, that not all black Californians should get reparations, only the descendants of slaves. The idea is that uh, reparations is a debt that's owed, and the direct descendants of slaves are standing in the shoes of their ancestors for that owed debt. The panel now is working on ways to put a dollar figure on that debt. I asked Camila Moore whether leading this effort feels like a huge responsibility. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it is. Um, it's also an e emotional process as well. Um, if people watch, for instance, the public hearings during the public comment, um, it's very cathartic for a lot of people. People are sharing their stories about the different harms and atrocities uh, their ancestors and they themselves have endured, not only in the state of California, but across the United States. I want to ask, uh, you know, a basic question that I think a lot of people might be wondering, which is this. Slavery has never been legal in California for as long as it's been a state. So why would California, of all places, owe reparations for slavery? 
Well, the task force very early in our study phase invited expert witnesses to speak on this question. And we learned that although California technically entered the union in 1850 as a free state, its early state government actually supported slavery. Also, we learned that um, 1,500 enslaved African-Americans were forced to labor in California, often working under dangerous conditions um, in the gold mine, for instance. And then lastly, we learned that in 1852, California passed and enforced a fugitive slave law that made California a more pro-slavery state than most other free states. And so we learned that, you know, California was really free in name only. Your task force uh, is deciding what the descendants of slaves should be paid for the harm that they've suffered from slavery's legacy. How can you even start to quantify that harm and then and then beyond quantifying it, attach a dollar figure to it? Yes. So um, uh, we uh, acknowledge that it is nearly impossible to put a dollar amount to the cost of human suffering of this group of people from slavery to present. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we're not going to attempt. And so we've actually hired five economists and public policy experts to help us uh, start quantifying what potential compensation could look like for uh, several state-sanctioned atrocities, including but not limited to uh, unjust property takings, health harms, mass incarceration. And this, as you can probably tell, is where this work gets really hard, messy, and technical. Take one area the task force is looking at, health disparities. Its economists have identified a 7.6-year life expectancy gap between black and white Californians, in part, Moore says, because of government policies. So to compensate for that, they're plugging it into a formula. So according to academics, uh, an individual's value of statistical life is around $10 million. And they divided it by the That formula led them to a dollar figure, about $13,000. So this would be the value of each year spent in California to which a black Californian descendant of slaves in the United States would be entitled. Complicated, right? And that's just for one of the five areas of harm the task force is studying. To be clear, the task force has not yet made any decisions on what it will recommend California pay in reparations, either in cash or in programs. One thing the task force is going to have to consider before making that decision is how much it thinks the state legislature and the public will be willing to pay. I asked another member of the task force, State Senator Stephen Bradford, about this. Just to pass something and ask for too much and know that the legislative appetite's not there to vote for it, that would be worse than not doing anything at all. So hopefully we can thread this needle and come up with the right proposal that has enough meat and substance to it where it will have a meaningful impact on people's lives. Camila Moore, the task force chair, says she feels a lot of pressure to get this right because the nation is watching. I hope that, you know, this task force sets a precedent not only for um, what other states can do to atone for their own particular atrocities against this you know, special and unique group of people, but of course, uh, the federal government as well, because you know, it's primarily the federal government's responsibility. They are the entity that has the big enough purse, for instance, to close the wealth gap. And so um, I do think that the task force is headed in the right direction in terms of that precedent setting. 
That was Camila Moore, chair of the California Reparations Task Force. As we just heard, Moore sees her task force as a model for the rest of the country. But there is a big obstacle to setting up a similar nationwide program, and that's that public opinion is firmly against federal reparations for the descendants of slaves. Two-thirds of Americans oppose reparations overall, and that share is even higher among white people. NPR's Jennifer Ludden looked at why. When he first started polling on reparations three years ago, Tatish Nateta at the University of Massachusetts Amherst expected money to be the big issue or how to make it all work. But that's not what he found. A plurality of Americans believe that the problem with reparations, the reason why they oppose reparations is because they don't believe the descendants of slaves uh, deserve reparations. So this is not a question of logistics or economics. It's a question of deservedness. Nateta plans more research to get at exactly why people think that. But on a recent sunny day, it was easy to find opinions on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. You can't take what we know now and try to superimpose yourself onto 150 years ago. Jeff Bernauer of Huntsville, Alabama, says, of course, slavery was wrong, and he calls racism a sin. But reparations now makes no sense. The generation that would be paying for it have nothing to do with what was done in the past, and then you're paying people that have nothing to do with it in the past. We're all immigrants at some point, whether it was voluntary or forced. There's a lot of people who came a lot of different ways. Terry Kewen was visiting from upstate New York. And nobody needs a handout anymore. Everybody, you know, pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and works for a living and makes their way in this world. That idea that hard work pays off is a core narrative of the U.S., says Yale social psychologist Michael Krauss. He surveyed people on the racial wealth gap and thinks his findings help explain the opposition to reparations. A majority of our sample tends to think that we've made steady progress towards greater equality in wealth between families, so between black and white families. And they think for every $100 white families have, black families have about $90. That is totally inconsistent with reality. The actual racial wealth gap is far bigger. Given that, and all the recent focus on racial justice around the country, Krauss calls this disconnect a kind of collective willful ignorance. He thinks many white people are not just unaware, but somehow avoiding information on how black people still face discrimination in the labor market, housing, and banking. In fact, the racial wealth gap just keeps growing and growing and growing. Realizing that is what made Dorothy Brown a convert on reparations, she's a Georgetown law professor who wrote a book about how even the U.S. tax system favors white families at the expense of black ones. She thinks reparations should be about systemic changes, not just cash. Her forthcoming book will make the case, and Brown thinks many Americans are persuadable. Part of it is an education. It's a walk through history. It's a recognition that, okay, you may not have had anything to do with slavery, but your grandfather, your white grandfather, got an FHA-insured loan. My grandfather couldn't because he was black. What's not clear is whether local reparations might help or hurt the push for a national policy. But Datish Nateta at UMass Amherst thinks some cities are being mindful of this opposition to atoning for slavery, like Evanston, Illinois, which is providing housing assistance for people who faced discrimination. Well, it's not about slavery. It's about the ways in which 
individuals who still are alive today were treated during a period of Jim Crow and institutionalized racism. So those people still exist. Maybe a national model will emerge, he says. And more young adults, along with most Black Americans, do support reparations. Then again, the Pew Research Center finds even supporters think reparations are unlikely in their lifetime. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about an unsung hero. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed down a tenth of one percent. The Nasdaq ended the day down nearly half a percent. The S&P 500 closed down nearly two-tenths of one percent. In business news, as all Red Sox fans are well aware, the team finished last in the American League East last season. But the Sox are still near the top of the list of Major League Baseball's most valuable teams. Forbes reports the Red Sox are worth $4.5 billion dollars. That's third most in the league behind the Yankees and Dodgers. This season, spring training ended today with a loss to the Braves. Opening day for the Sox is Thursday against the Orioles at Fenway Park. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Check out Violation. It's a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project, exploring America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. It is 42 degrees in Boston with some isolated showers tonight and lows in the low 30s. A sunny Wednesday, tomorrow's highs in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed this month at what appeared to be lightning speed, but the storm clouds had been gathering for several years. Today, a Senate committee began to explore the economic and regulatory climate that contributed to the nation's second largest bank failure. Senators are also looking at who will pay for the cleanup and how to prevent similar messes in the future. NPR's Scott Horsley has been keeping an eye on all of this and this hearing and joins us now. So, Scott, what have we learned? about the events that led up to the bank's collapse. It starts with some bad decision-making by the people in charge at the bank. Now, CEO Greg Becker was not there to defend himself, although the committee hopes to hear from him in the future. But we did hear today from the top bank regulator at the Federal Reserve, Michael Barr, and he says Silicon Valley executives failed at the bread-and-butter basics of running a bank. 
This is a textbook case of, of bank mismanagement. They were quite vulnerable to shocks, and they didn't take the actions necessary to meet that. The bank's deposits ballooned in recent years as the tech industry was booming, and bank managers put a lot of that money into government bonds, which lost value when interest rates rose. Now, there are ways for banks to protect themselves and their customers from that interest rate risk, but Silicon Valley Bank didn't do that. And when customers got wind of the problem earlier this month, they raced to pull their money out. Okay, so this was a classic bank run, but at Silicon Valley speed? That's right. In true Valley fashion, the high-tech depositors moved fast and broke things. Uh, you might have heard about the $42 billion that customers pulled out of Silicon Valley Bank in a single day. That was Thursday, March 9th. After that, bankers scrambled overnight to borrow money. But we learned today from Barr that by Friday morning, the bank run looked even worse. That morning, the bank let us know that they expected the outflow to be vastly larger. A total of $100 billion was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that, and they were shut down. Now, nobody expected the bank's customers to bolt that quickly. But Barr confirmed today regulators had identified problems with the way bank, the bank was managing its risks and had been sounding alarm bells for well over a year. Well over a year. Okay, so why were those warnings not acted on? We don't know for sure. Uh, Senate Republicans were a little defensive today. They insist that a 2018 law that relaxed bank oversight was not to blame for what happened here. Aside from that law, though, the Fed itself has been watering down bank regulation in recent years at the urging of bank lobbyists. And Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen says that might have given bankers the idea they could ignore those warnings. It seems to be part of a pattern of an effort to push back on regulators' authority and then come back and do the Monday morning quarterbacking and saying, where were they? Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said last week he does expect to see some beefed-up oversight of banks as a result of this failure. And Montana Senator John Tester says something's got to be done. If it's the regulator's fault, it better be fixed. If it's the regulation fault, it better be fixed. If it's something else, I hope there's a report to this committee saying, you know what, guys, this can happen again unless this happens. But it looks to me like the regulators knew the problem, but nobody dropped the hammer. And Scott, there is a pretty big price tag for this collapse. So who gets that bill? Yeah, the government promised to insure all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, many of which were well over the $250,000 limit that's usually covered. So that's going to put an estimated $20 billion dent in the government's deposit insurance fund. Now, taxpayers won't foot that bill. Other banks will. And a number of senators complain that small banks in their states might end up paying the price for Silicon Valley's missteps. Wyoming Senator Cynthia Lummis pressed the FDIC chairman, Martin Grunberg, who said there might be some wiggle room in how that bill's divvied up. Are you saying that you're able to exempt Wyoming's community banks from paying for this? I'm suggesting we have some discretion there, and we're going to consider that will, issue carefully. Will you exempt community banks from having to pay for this? That's a judgment our board is going to have to make. And the FDIC is expected to spell out a formula for collecting that money in about a month. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Time now for my unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Many of the people you've heard featured in this series don't get to thank their heroes face to face. But today we bring you one such conversation. In 2015, Jamil Zaki's daughter Alma was born. She suffered a stroke during her birth and was sent to a neonatal intensive care unit. 
Early one morning at about 1 a.m., a doctor came by to share some difficult news about her treatment plan. And instead of just delivering the news compassionately and leaving, he just pulled up a chair. It was just me and him. And we talked, I'd say, for about 90 minutes or so. Sharing his story inspired Zaki to find that doctor, Dr. Mark Peterson. They connected over Zoom, and Zaki shared what was going through his mind that day, years before, in the hospital. I just felt like I couldn't control anything. I was feeling this this mm-hmm. loss of uh, of autonomy, of agency. Mm-hmm. And, and And then I just remember you not leaving. And if I remember correctly, you talked about your kids. And you were just sharing that, hey, you know, it's just hard to be a parent. And and afterwards, I stopped thinking about the suffering that we were going through and started thinking about, okay, well, what do we do for Almond next? And then what comes after that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think as any new parent, we all have that moment. And I remember our first night with, um, you know, my own child, you know, crying, wouldn't be, couldn't eat. It was hot. We didn't know what to do and, and looking for mm. help. It's nothing like going through the NICU, but I think when you just have another parent connect in that way and say, you're doing everything right, I think we all help each other. And I think at that moment, obviously for me to be able to stay and talk with you, I was getting something out of that conversation too. But it's um, an amazing feeling to be able to be part of that and help guide families through that. that that's what it is, Mark. It's, it's that... I, I feel like in that moment you stepped out from behind the white coat, so to speak. And I think that that crucial moment, that crossroads for us, you know, um, you were there for us. You were there for me. And I, I, I don't think that I could ever adequately thank you for that. Well, getting that thanks means a lot to me. And it's definitely not, nothing that I feel is necessary because we want to be there. And you know, that magic of being able to be there at the moment when someone's family starts is a very special thing. Jamil Zaki and Dr. Mark Peterson. Zaki says that Alma is now seven and doing great. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529, and coming up in about 15 minutes, on All Things Considered, you'll hear newly released recordings obtained by WBUR in the Boston Globe of former New England Patriots player Aaron Hernandez's final calls from prison, and these calls raise new questions about his suicide nearly six years ago. 
It is 42 degrees in Boston with isolated showers tonight and lows dipping to the low 30s. A sunny Wednesday, tomorrow's temperatures in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, after nearly a decade of work, the state's overhauling the way students with special needs get important educational services. Will these efforts to improve individual education programs, or IEPs, improve the difficulty families often experience with them? WBUR's Carrie Young joins us on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, members of a Senate banking committee held a hearing today to talk about the recent failures of several regional banks and the impacts those failures had on the financial systems. Silicon Valley Bank was sold yesterday after being briefly taken over by the government and Signature Bank got money from several larger banks to keep operating. FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg told lawmakers the situation merits serious attention. The two bank failures demonstrate the implications that banks with assets over $100 billion can have for financial stability. The prudential regulation of these institutions merits serious attention, particularly for capital, liquidity, and interest rate risk. Senator Tim Scott reiterated that Congress has to get to the bottom of what causes these collapses and charge those accountable. All accounts, this is a classic tale of negligence, and it started with the banks themselves. The Biden administration plans to finish a new five-year offshore oil and gas leasing plan by the end of the year. NPR's Jeff Brady has more on today's announcement. President Biden campaigned on banning new oil and gas permitting on public lands and waters. Still, his administration recently approved the controversial Willow Project in Alaska. And Interior Secretary Deb Holland says her department is working on a new five-year offshore oil and gas leasing plan. We expect the final plan out in September, and after the required review period, it will be effective in December. The plan is required by law, and the oil industry has pushed the administration to work on it faster. Texas Republican Congressman Jake Elsey asked Holland about rumors the plan might not include any sales. Holland said she can't decide that ahead of the planning process underway. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Stocks finish mostly lower. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll is joining a coalition to protect reproductive rights. The group includes 22 Democratic lieutenant governors. The other New England states in the coalition so far are Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Driscoll said in a statement that Massachusetts has a long history of standing up for reproductive freedom, The group says it plans to share ideas to protect health care providers, maximize reproductive health care funds, and support abortion medication manufacturers. A chemical fire last month at a hazardous waste treatment center in Braintree has reignited concerns about public safety in the region. There's a high concentration of industrial activity there, and activists have long called for a regional safety and evacuation plan. Local leaders now say they're on board. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. In addition to clean harbors, the Braintree-Weymouth-Quincy area is home to a natural gas compressor station, two power plants, 
two fuel tank farms, a chemical manufacturing facility, and a plant that makes fertilizer. Alice Arena, the president of a local environmental group, calls the area a circle of danger. You've put all of these toxic, explosive facilities in one location that is surrounded by residential areas. Arena says the area needs a regional safety plan. In the event of an evacuation, there are limited roadways in and out, she says. In the wake of the fire, local leaders are now also calling for regional emergency planning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The remains of a Cumberland, Rhode Island Army sergeant who died in a POW camp during the Korean War have been accounted for. Sergeant Lawrence Robodeau was 22 years old when he was reported missing in action in November 1950. His remains will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. It is 42 degrees in Boston with some isolated showers tonight and lows dropping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, you can expect sunny skies and highs in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Since the news broke yesterday, we have been reporting on the deadly school shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. Three children and three adults were killed. And while more remembrances will come for those six lives, and as the investigation continues, we're going to take a moment to lay out how this latest tragedy fits into a broader picture of data on gun violence in U.S. schools. First, it's worth noting that last year, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention identified gun violence, no matter where it happens, as the leading cause of death for children in the country, based on the most recent data available from 2020. But when it comes to school shootings specifically, the federal government does not track them. Several other independent sources do. And what happened in Nashville marked the 39th incident so far this year that involved gunfire on school grounds. That's according to the K-12 through school shooting database. And by many measures, the number of school shootings in this country has increased over the years. According to The Washington Post, 46 shootings took place on school campuses during school hours in 2022. That was the highest number of school shootings recorded in a single calendar year since 1999. And the Post data also finds that school shootings have a disproportionate impact nationally on children of color. And if we account for reports of any kind of gun-related incident at a school, including those that don't result in gunfire, ones after school hours, even just when a gun is brandished on school property, that's happened 89 times in 2023, according to the K-12 database. That's about one gun-related incident at a school for every day so far this year. And for those who survive these incidents, the children, teachers, families, school staff, the toll it takes... It's impossible to measure. 
It's time for our medical bill of the month, which this month was sent to a preschooler. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is editor-in-chief of our partner, Kaiser Health News. Welcome, Dr. Rosenthal. Oh, thanks for having me again. All right. So tell us who we're meeting today. Well, today we're meeting Sarah McGlynn from Florida, who did what we urge consumers to do. When she got an emergency room bill that was obviously wrong, she tried to dispute it. But because the bill was in her four-year-old's name, not hers, first the hospital and then a collection agency refused to talk to her. They said they had to speak to the kid. Okay, so basically the hospital wanted her kid to pay up. All right. Reporter Sojourner Ahebe has Sarah's story. Let's listen. When four-year-old Keeling burned his hand on a hot stove, Sarah rushed her son to the emergency room. And, of course, he was inconsolable. I mean, he was absolutely screaming. Even in the midst of all that, Sarah thought she was making a solid financial decision for her family. The ER just north of Tampa was in network for their health plan. At the ER... Sarah says a physician told her Keeling needed to go to a specialist burn care center. But I mean, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, it's a third degree burn. What's going to happen? What's he going to need to have done? Sarah is a dentist. She understands the ins and outs of the healthcare system. But with her four-year-old in pain, the last thing on her mind was if there'd be a bill. Here's what the doctor said. I don't remember exactly how she phrased it, but something along the lines of, well, we won't even call this a visit because we can't do anything. At the second hospital, little Keeling got the care he needed. He was bandaged up, went home, and he's just fine now. Then the bills came. And here's where the story gets strange. One bill was addressed to Sarah's preschool-aged son. It said the four-year-old was the person responsible for the bill, plus the hospital listed Keeling as uninsured and unemployed. Sarah says when she called the hospital that operates the ER, she hit a wall because her name was not on the bill. Literally, I had a couple people say, okay, I literally cannot talk to you about this. I could I could be in trouble legally for speaking with you. And um, I mean, it just blew my mind. It was the craziest thing. And, and I said, but I, he's a minor. He's four. What do you mean you can't talk to me? This went on for months. Sarah got more frustrated. Then in January, Sarah received a letter from a collection agency called MetaCredit. The letter said that her four-year-old owed about $130. I just started getting collection notices. Sarah tried calling the collection agency, but says representatives refused to speak to her, noting yet again that the bill was not in Sarah's name. Finally, in March, Sarah says she got a call from a customer service representative connected to HCA Healthcare. But that's only after a reporter reached out to HCA to inquire about the collections bill in Keeling's name. She wanted to assure me that nothing had ever been sent to credit monitoring. Now, I, does that even exist for a four-year-old? Well, now five-year-old, I, I doubt it. An HCA marketing director followed up to say the health system had reached out to Sarah to apologize to her for the inconvenience and that there was a zero balance on the account. In the end, Sarah says it wasn't even about the money. The most vexing part was all the time she lost. And thankfully, I'm really stubborn and I was really irritated. And so I decided to keep pushing for months and months. 
most people, I think, would give up. For NPR News, I'm Sojourner Ahebe. We are back with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Okay, so to me, this feels like there should have been an easy fix here. But tell us, why was there not one? Well, uh, I think because these days much of medical billing is completely automated. So it's gotten easier for mistakes like this to happen, right? A a machine might not realize that, hey, this isn't right, billing a preschooler. This doesn't make any sense. But, you know, when Sarah's talked to real people at the other end of the phone, someone could have looked at Keeling's date of birth or the ER record where the doctor noted his age and corrected the error. But unfortunately, department reps often seem to follow the machine rather than common sense. Okay, so I wonder, can a billing mistake like this hurt a kid down the road? I mean, I'm thinking of his credit or perhaps even his ability to get a student loan in the future. Well, that's certainly a concern. I mean, in Keeling's situation, it wasn't sent to a credit reporting agency, but this kind of stuff could happen. So when you're getting medical care for your child, check that you, the parent or guardian, is listed as the financially responsible party. And if an error does go all the way to collections, make double sure that the agency removes any record of the debt to protect the child's financial future. And so what about when bill collectors start calling? Do people just give up and pay the bill at that point? Well, too many do, but they shouldn't. It's not like game over, you lose once a bill goes to collections. Consumers do have rights, but it's awful how much effort it takes to assert them. You have to document every interaction, try to get promises in writing. And if it's legal where you live, I'd suggest even recording your phone calls. But it's a lot to ask of patients. Certainly. That's good advice, though, from Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Thank you, as always. Thank you. If you have a confusing medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us all about it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody. In 2017, former New England Patriots star Aaron Hernandez died by suicide in prison. Now, WBUR and the Boston Globe have obtained copies of his final phone calls. That came after a lengthy public records battle. The public has never heard the recordings before. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports the calls are mostly upbeat, adding to the questions about the death of Hernandez. A warning, this story includes descriptions of suicide. This is a prepaid call from... Aaron Hernandez. An inmate at a Massachusetts correctional institution, the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center. This is one of nine calls Hernandez made in the day and a half before he hanged himself in the early morning hours of April 19, 2017. Hernandez had just been acquitted of a double murder in Boston days earlier. In the recordings, the former tight end sounds jubilant. Another beautiful day, man. Beautiful day, man. It's just like the whole world just came off my back. Hernandez still had to deal with a previous murder conviction for killing his friend, Odin Lloyd. He was appealing the case and seemed optimistic. You can only hear Hernandez on the calls because the prison system withheld the other voices, 
citing privacy reasons. They work out perfect, man. I'm going to fight to the end to get myself home. When I sit down, it's game time, you know? Attorney George Leontire represented Hernandez. He says no one imagined Hernandez would end his life. It didn't make sense. I, I can only tell you we were shocked. I think everyone involved was shocked. Friends who spoke with Hernandez were also stunned. Here's former NFL player Fred Taylor in a podcast called The Pivot late last year. He refers to Hernandez by his college nickname, Chico. I talked to him the night before, and uh, in that conversation, he was the Chico I remember talking to when he was a, a young player at the University of Florida, you know, just full of life, full of energy. In other calls, Hernandez talks about getting back to his workout routine. He makes plans to reconnect with friends and loved ones and encourages them to visit. Tell everybody I send my love, man. I hope the best for you, man. I hope everything keeps going well for you, man, and we'll stay in touch, you heard? It's not unusual for someone to seem hopeful before a suicide. Eileen Davis runs Call to Talk, a statewide suicide prevention hotline. Oftentimes, individuals that do take their own lives do sound more upbeat and positive in the hours, days, weeks prior to the actual suicide or suicide attempt. She says that can make it hard to predict these deaths. Most of the time, suicide is the result of a combination of a lot of factors. And it's almost like a perfect storm in, in your head. In the case of Hernandez, one factor is that he had a degenerative brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. It's been linked to head injuries in contact sports like football. CTE can cause people to be aggressive or even violent. Researchers say they've seen a number of examples of people with CTE who died by suicide. There's just a lot of impulsivity and very sudden changes in behavior. That's Dr. Ann McKee, who leads Boston University's CTE Center. The disease can only be diagnosed after someone dies by examining samples of the brain under a microscope. McKee says Hernandez had one of the worst cases she'd ever seen in someone so young. We graded one through four, where four is the most severe, and here he was, a 27-year-old with stage three, and that, that was quite unusual. Records show Hernandez also smoked a synthetic drug called K2 in the days before his death. Drug specialists say K2 can have dangerous side effects, especially for people like Hernandez with brain injuries. So it's a Russian roulette when people take these drugs because they do not know, first of all, what is the chemical they are consuming. That's Nora Volkov. She's director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She says K2 can lead to psychotic episodes. So it's not just that they are potent, but they actually their effects on behavior can last many, many hours. And this becomes particularly problematic when, when people are using them and they have a negative reaction. So, for example, they can become psychotic. Eight hours after his last phone call, guards found Hernandez dead in a cell and religious writings on the walls and blood. A Bible reference, John 3.16, was written on his forehead. It remains a shocking end for the famous former NFL player, a convicted murderer who had used illegal drugs, suffered from severe brain damage, and didn't know if he'd ever be a free man. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. You can also reach the Samaritan Statewide Hotline by calling or texting one 1- 877-870-HOPE.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more, opening April 1st. WorcesterArt.org. It is 5.49, and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear that former foreign military personnel volunteer to teach fighting techniques to Ukrainian conscripts, but they sometimes get just a few days with new soldiers before the soldiers are sent to the front. It's 42 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny, highs in the low 50s. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Let's go now to a small town in Russia and take a look at how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed so much back home. NPR's Charles Mains reports on a father and his child who spoke out against the war and the consequences they faced. In Yefremov, a small 17th-century river town tucked in a valley a four-hour drive from Moscow, the war in Ukraine has come home. Along Yefremov's main street, a giant banner next to the local bait-and-tackle shop calls for a world without Nazism, just one of several expressions of ostensible public support for the Kremlin's military campaign in this town of 35,000. Yefremov's lone independent council member and Kremlin critic Olga Podolskaya says what she finds hard to look at, most residents find hard to ignore. The banner is a daily reminder, Podolska says, that in Yefremov and across Russia, some things you're allowed to say, while others are forbidden. Alexei Moskalyov and his daughter Masha learned that lesson the hard way. Their trouble started last March, explains Moskalyov in a video taken by supporters. His daughter Masha, age 12, was asked to draw a picture about Russia's special military operation in school, he says. Only her drawing showed Russian rockets aimed at a Ukrainian mother and child, with the words glory to Ukraine and no to war written on it, setting off an almost surreal chain of events. The school administration informed the authorities, he says. Soon 12-year-old Masha was being interrogated by police. Then the security services discovered social media posts in which Moskalyov was openly critical of the Russian invasion, for which he was issued a fine. Fast forward to late December, and Moskalov describes the moment dozens of riot police stormed a rented apartment he and his daughter had fled to a few towns over, cutting through the doors with power saws as Masha screamed. And then came the charges against him, discrediting the Russian army and a follow-on case aimed at revoking his parental rights. We're still Moskalov as a single parent, raising Masha on his own. When I visited Yefremov earlier this month, Moskalyov was under house arrest and a gag order pending trial. Masha was somewhere locked behind the gates of a local children's home in Comunicado. No one has heard from Masha since the beginning of the month, says Yelena Agafonova, a local activist who passed along a charged cell phone for the orphanage to give to Masha, only no one answers. The shocking nature of the case, separating a parent from his child, is intended to resonate, says Moskalyov's lawyer, Vladimir Belienko. 
это намек всем остальным. It sends a signal to everyone, Belyanko says, keep quiet or the same could happen to you. Meanwhile, Olga Podolska, the local lawmaker, tells me everyone in Yefremov is depressed and afraid. If locals discuss the case, they do it quietly among themselves to avoid trouble, says Podolska. People remember the Soviet era and what it means to be an enemy of the people, she adds. In his final statement before the judge this week, Moskolyov argued 90% of those in the courtroom were against the war. How else could you feel about people dying, he said. Only then, another twist. Last night, Moskolyov fled Yefremov before a judge today sentenced him to two years in prison. But in Yefremov, the Moskolyovs aren't the only ones touched by the war. About a mile from the courthouse, a group of Russian tricolor flags in a far corner of the local cemetery guide my suspicion through the spring mud to a group of fresh graves. Five, six, seven, eight, maybe more. Official counts of Russia's war dead remain incredibly low, but the toll of the conflict is evident if you look for it. Alexander Botachev, uh, born in 1996, died December 2nd, 2008. Mounds of flowers and messages of grief surround framed pictures of young and sometimes not so young faces in uniform. Fathers, brothers, sons, all killed in the past year. There was no way to know the story of these men or what their families thought of the war. I was alone in the graveyard. But what was clear was this. Like Alexei and Masha Moskalyov, other families had been torn apart. Charles Maines, NPR News, Yefremov. The man who helped discover how marijuana makes people high has died. Raphael Meshulam was so important to the scientific understanding of the drug that he was known as the father of cannabis research. NPR's Becky Sullivan has this remembrance. Raphael Meshulam was born in Bulgaria in 1930. He immigrated to Israel with his family as a young man after World War II, and there he started his career in chemistry. Back then, marijuana was on the cusp of exploding in popularity worldwide, but scientifically speaking, nobody knew very much about it compared to other drugs, he said during a talk at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem a few years ago. While uh, uh, morphine had been isolated from opium 150 years previously, and cocaine had been isolated from coca leaves uh, about 100 years previously, the active compound or compounds in hashish and marijuana had never been isolated in pure form. That meant it couldn't really be studied by chemists or pharmacologists. So in 1962, Mishulam and his team of researchers set out to learn exactly how the drug works. And at that time, he said, getting samples to study meant going to the police. I went to the police and got five kilos of hashish. <laughs> and uh, then he took, took the hashish with me uh, on a bus. I didn't have a car then. And uh, people were looking around and saying, hey, what a pleasant smell. By 1964, Meshulam had isolated the psychoactive compound that causes the drug's distinctive high, which of course is called tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. And he was learning more about its other compounds too, including cannabidiol, or CBD. Still, major research groups like the National Institutes of Health were at first skeptical about funding his work, as he told a conference in 2017. As a matter of fact, when I asked for a grant, I was told by NIH, when you have something more relevant to the U.S., uh, contact us. 
cannabis is not of interest. It's used sometimes in Mexico, but not in the U.S. Well, that changed quite fast. During Meshulam's long career, marijuana grew both in popularity and in controversy. As debates unfolded over the drug's safety, Meshulam's research helped demonstrate its potential in medical settings to treat conditions like epilepsy or to help prevent complications with bone marrow transplants. His life's work was, quote, a pleasure beyond my expectations, he wrote in a medical journal in January. Meshulam died earlier this month. He was 92 years old. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. Marcel Marceau, the French performer who made pantomime famous in the modern age, would have turned 100 this month. NPR critic Bob Mondello saw him perform many times, first as a kid in 1957, and much later as an uncle when Marceau was nearly 80. My nephews laughed as he chased himself around a curtain as both David and Goliath, and laughed again as his character Bip, inspired by Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp, ice skated and tamed lions. Bob Mondello remembers Marcel Marceau with delight and wonder on tomorrow's All Things Considered. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Lone Star Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some retired military personnel are volunteering to teach skills to new Ukrainian troops, but the troops are only getting a few days training before they head off to battle. And his total duration of military service was less than two weeks, from conscription to death. It's Tuesday, March 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Browdy in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the latest on the deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Also, expanding the use of involuntary commitment for people who are homeless and battling mental illness has become a polarizing topic for disability rights advocates and politicians. I call it a war of compassion, actually, because both sides want to do the right thing. On Wall Street, stocks close lower today. Marketplace has business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The U.S. and Russia are no longer sharing nuclear weapons data. It is the latest fallout over Russia's decision to suspend the New START treaty. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
The U.S. offered to keep this biannual data exchange going even after President Vladimir Putin suspended Russia's participation in the New START treaty. But State Department spokesman Vidan Patel says Russia made clear it won't be sharing its data. Russia's failure to exchange this data will therefore be a violation of the treaty, uh, adding on to its existing violations of the New START treaty. New START is the only treaty that caps the U.S. and Russian nuclear arsenals. It also calls for inspections, but those were suspended at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Russia called off talks to revive those inspections to protest U.S. military support to Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Congress is considering banning the popular social media app TikTok because of a perceived national security threat from China. TikTok is owned by the Chinese company Byte. Dance. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports that a new NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll shows most Americans are in favor of a ban. 57% support banning TikTok. Three quarters of the more than 1,300 respondents say TikTok does represent either a major or minor threat to national security. And that concern is bipartisan. Seven in 10 Democrats and eight in 10 Republicans see it the same way, though Republicans are more likely to see TikTok as a major threat. There's a generational divide, though. Gen Z and millennials are split on whether they want to ban it and are far less likely to see the popular app as a national security threat. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Stocks were mixed today as Wall Street finds some equilibrium at the end of a volatile trading month. The S&P 500 dropped six points, a dip of 0.2 percent. NPR's David Gura has this snapshot. Some stability has returned to the banking sector and bond yields have moved higher. Shares of the social media company Snap were off 5.8 percent and Pinterest 4.3 percent. On a day when the chair of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve's vice chair for supervision testified about the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, alongside the Treasury Department's undersecretary for domestic finance, many of the big banks ended the day up. All three government officials said they're in favor of more regulation. And Disney began cutting some 7,000 jobs. The entertainment giant shares closed down 0.8 percent. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow lost 37 points. The conference board reports that despite inflation and recession worries, consumer confidence ticked up last month. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is promoting her proposed tax relief and reform package. She testified at the State House today before the Joint Committee on Revenue. Healey says her goal involves making Massachusetts more affordable for residents and more competitive for business. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. Healey's plan includes a tax credit for parents and caregivers of $600 per dependent. It also provides relief for seniors and renters in Massachusetts. The governor says too many residents are struggling with the high cost of living. Unable to pay rent, unable to, to think about a down payment, unable to afford childcare, gas, groceries. It's such a challenge for so many across our state. Healy's tax package would also lower the state's short-term capital gains tax to 5% and triple the estate tax threshold to $3 million. Critics, including the Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition, say those proposals favor the ultra-rich and would put the state at risk for huge budget cuts in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 
Beginning in May, the Massachusetts Health Connector will publish a dashboard with information about residents losing their health coverage. The dashboard will include demographic information and information about where residents live and why they lost their coverage. The state expects more than 300,000 people will get kicked off MassHealth in the coming months as a result of changes to pandemic-era health coverage rules. MassHealth says it will be able to help people find other subsidized health insurance. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is reintroducing legislation that would affirm the U.S. role in protecting and promoting LGBTQI rights around the globe. The bill would make permanent the U.S. Office of the Special Envoy for the Human Rights of LGBTQI plus persons. The bottom line here is that no one in any country should be penalized for who they are or who they love. Mark, he says too many people are being targeted internationally and in the U.S. on the basis of their sexuality or gender identities. Massachusetts schools still have nearly $1.5 billion in unspent aid the federal government sent them during the pandemic. An official with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education said today that's just over half of the emergency education aid the state received from Washington. About $215 million of the remaining funds must be spent by September 30th. The rest of the money needs to be used before October of next year. Spring training has concluded for the Red Sox. The Sox lost to the Braves 7-5 today. Opening day is Thursday afternoon against the Orioles at Fenway. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Nashville Predators. The Bees will try to break the franchise record for most wins in a season. Tonight, the Celtics take on the Wizards in D.C. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Police have now released body camera footage of yesterday's attack on a Nashville elementary school. The video shows officers encounter with the shooter who killed three children and three adults at the Covenant School. Here with the latest in the investigation is Chaz Sisk, senior editor with Nashville member station WPLN. Chaz, welcome. Thank you. Can you describe a bit more of what the body cam footage shows and what it tells us about the shooting? Yeah, uh, so the body camera footage, which was released this morning, it's very harrowing, and it shows about a three-minute encounter from the time that officers entered the building until the assailant was killed. I think one of the things that it shows clearly is that the assailant was either shot by officers or at least died during the encounter in the hallway, which took place on the second floor. And what you see in this video is officers very quickly and methodically going from classroom to classroom. It's also important what you don't see, which is children in any of the rooms as police are searching the building, which probably speaks to how well-drilled the school was and what to do during a school shooting. Also, you see the teachers uh, interacting with officers, and they seem to be very well prepared. They're able to give officers, as they arrive, clear instructions on where the children are and to share some information on where the assailant might be. Have we learned any more about the assailant's motive? 
Uh, you know, police say they have some documents and maps that lay out the plan, but they really aren't sure what the motive is, or at least they're, they're not willing to say what that is. Uh, what we do know is that the suspect was a 28-year-old named Audrey Hale. Uh, Hale is a former student of the school, and uh, yesterday the police searched Hale's family home, which was about three miles from the school. The police are saying today that what they found was that Hale had a total of seven weapons and that they were all legally obtained from five gun stores in Nashville. They also say that Hale's family thought that Hale shouldn't have any guns, um, but they knew that Hale had one, and that three of those guns were used in the shooting, and the others might have been hidden in the home. I know that there have been some vigils and uh, also demonstrations. Uh, How is the community reacting? Well, a handful of churches did open their doors last night for community vigils. It's worth noting that the Green Hills neighborhood, which is the part of Nashville where this happened, it's a major center for religious life in Nashville. Uh, There are a lot of churches with Christian schools attached to them in this part of town. I I do expect there'll be more community vigils over the next few days. But, you know, the bigger reaction appears to be political. This is a state where Republicans have been rolling back gun laws pretty aggressively. And ever since Sandy Hook a decade ago, uh, the push has been to make guns more available. So, you know, one of the first public gatherings that we've seen in reaction to the shooting was actually organized by Moms Demand Action, which uh, held a a rally at the Capitol earlier today. What kind of a civilization does not defend their children? I'm worried that this is going to be another one of those news cycles where everybody is very upset for a couple of days until the next big thing happens. So that was Heidi Campbell. She's a state senator who represents the area, speaking in favor of some tighter gun laws. And uh, also, you're seeing something similar from uh, Nashville's music community. A lot of them are speaking out, some of them noting that their own children attend nearby schools. Chaz, who, who were the victims? Have we learned anything more about them? Uh, What we know about the victims, again, is that there were three children. All of them are believed to be age nine. We now know that one was the daughter of the lead minister of the church that's attached to Covenant School. And we also know that the adult victims were the head of the school, a custodian who worked there, and a substitute teacher. I understand that you live uh, in this neighborhood. What has it been like covering this story? Uh, yeah, it's been, I mean, very sobering to see these images uh, where, you, where you live and, and are every day. And I've lived in Green Hills for 16 years. And, you know, my own kids went to a preschool at one of the churches in the area. And I, I'd say this because I think it's important to understand how Nashville functions. This illustrates that, you know, it's a big city, but it very much works like a small town. And so uh, if people don't know someone directly impacted by the shooting, they very likely know someone who does. And uh, we've already heard from a lot of those people uh, here at WPLN who have personal connections to the victims. And one thing that they're talking about is just how closely connected this school is uh, with the state's political leaders. And uh, I have to wonder whether that's had an impact on the conversation about guns going forward. All right. I've been speaking with Chaz Sisk with WPLN in Nashville. Uh, Chaz, thank you. Thank you. The Ukrainian army continues to conscript thousands of new troops to replace heavy losses on the battlefield. One thing those new soldiers need? Good training. Some retired foreign military members are volunteering to teach fighting skills, but they say they need a lot more time to prepare these troops for the front lines. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Ukraine's Donbass region. There are about 15 border force soldiers basically lying on the ground the snow-covered field and they're learning how to cock and fire their weapons fortunately with no bullets in them at the moment 
Hello, I'm Magnus. I'm an instructor from Sweden. Magnus X served as a lieutenant in the Swedish army. He spent months here training Ukrainian troops. As the conscripts stand in line, X shows each one how to hold an AK-47. Try to put this here, on here, like this. Can I borrow? So he's showing him how to put it on his shoulder and get his eye down right on the sight. X teaches through humor. He twists his body like a pretzel, aiming the gun in various directions to show soldiers what they shouldn't do. Some of the conscripts can't help but laugh. So funny, so funny, yeah. But the situation here, it's no joke. For these conscripts, this is their seventh day as soldiers. Before, they worked as electricians, welders, and construction workers. Volodymyr, he doesn't want to give his full name, is 36 years old and worked in a blast furnace. He finds Magnus's instruction entertaining and useful. Absolutely. You learn how to handle a gun, how to assemble it, disassemble it, to understand how it operates, how it shoots. Have you worked with guns before? No, never. When was the first time you picked up a rifle? Yesterday. Ek has just one day with Volodymyr and his fellow conscripts. He won't even have the opportunity to do something very basic, show them how to adjust the sights to their rifles so they can aim accurately. It's called zeroing a gun. They did not want to zero the guns. Not enough time? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some other time. Lieutenant Colonel Vyacheslav Andrusenko is deputy head of combat training for Ukraine's border force. He says these conscripts will get about 17 days of instruction. By comparison, basic training in the U.S. Army is 10 weeks. So I ask him. If you were able to, how long would you give them training? I believe in order to be efficient so they can do their tasks, they all need at least 35 days. How do you feel? How do I feel? <laughs> well, I'd say I'm concerned. I'm a bit concerned. I just hope that everything we give them, they will use in battle, and it will help them to do their tasks to the maximum potential. Kelly Kilhoffer is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. On a couple of occasions, he says he was able to get three to four weeks with soldiers. Far more often, he got three to five days. Kilhoffer, who's now back in the U.S., raised concerns. I was talking to the Ukrainian officer. I'm like, look, if we had more time, these guys would last longer. And he said, well, they got three days training, and they've learned, they've adapted, and they're doing great. And I said, well, yeah, but you're talking to the alive ones. I said, you're not talking to the dead ones. One of the dead ones was a gung-ho Ukrainian graphic artist turned soldier named Ed. His passing hit Kilhoffer hard, as well as Kilhoffer's training team, which included Magnus Ek and a retired U.S. Marine staff sergeant named Stan. Ed was a favorite. Really funny guy. Always a big smile. We trained and trained and trained. He'd load up extra magazines. He'd practice shooting. And, and his total duration of military service was less than two weeks, from conscription to death. I have him on signal. His phone is done. Like, uh, I used to send him messages. Sorry, I'm like tearing. That was Stan referring to the encrypted messaging app Signal, which is how he stayed in touch with Ed. Stan says Ed died on his first mission, an assault on a Russian trench line that went wrong. Minefield, lost both legs. They couldn't retrieve him, and he's still out there to this day. And, and this really hurts the most that they said that they heard him. They still heard him. The foreign volunteers say they come here for various reasons. Kilhoffer says he saw Rush as a bully, was appalled by the human rights abuses. Eck wanted to put his skills to use from a decade as an instructor in Sweden. And then there's another team member, Shannon Taylor, 
She's a 25-year-old trauma nurse from New Zealand who provides battlefield first aid training. She was inspired by a TV show about combat nurses in World War I. It's when these five nurses found like an abandoned building and they developed it into a field hospital and they just treated all the wounded soldiers. And since then, like I've always just wanted to do that. Stan, who said he didn't want to use his full name for privacy reasons, sees himself as something of a crusader. He also says there's a common thread among those drawn to this war. Atonement, a lot of people are escaping their past, escaping supposedly sins that they think they have the chance to, I guess, uh, redo and make the cosmos good again. Stan did not elaborate. Back at the training range, a group of soldiers huddle around Taylor, kneeling in the snow, showing them how to patch an abdominal wound. Do not apply pressure. You just want to apply the wetness to the abdominal area wrap it around just to keep it in place. With the abdominal wounds, you want to make sure you don't push anything, intestines, nothing back inside. Speaking in the team's apartment, Taylor says the training is paying off. One soldier she trained told her he was able to treat two others in the field. One had suffered a head wound, the other lost half his hand. He just walked in the door and gave me a massive hug and said that, yeah, he was able to use those skills and from the time that I had spent with him, to rescue these two guys, that just made it all worth it. Taylor had planned to fly back to New Zealand in January, but she's delayed her return. She says she wants to stay in Ukraine as long as she can. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kramatorsk. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 619 and Marketplace is coming up at 630. You'll get the story on walking the 300 miles from D.C. to Manhattan, including the challenges of being a pedestrian and navigating the sea of commerce that is the New Jersey Turnpike. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed down a tenth of one percent. The Nasdaq finished down nearly half a percent. The S&P 500 closed down nearly two-tenths of one percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. A new study finds stark inequities in access to the Blue Hills Reservation for people who rely on public transit. Today, WBUR's The Common Podcast breaks down the study's findings and proposed solutions. You can find The Common on your podcast app. It's 44 degrees in Boston with some isolated showers this evening and overnight lows in the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the low 50s. Coming to City Space Sunday, April 2nd, a classical concert with Grammy Award-winning composer Mehmet Ali, Asen Lakal, and Boston Chamber Orchestra, A Far Cry. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. 
I'm Leila Faldin. We've learned that we can't take our democracy for granted. Journalism in the public interest, journalism that is the heart of WBUR keeps democracy thriving. Member dollars give WBUR the time to pursue stories that can take months of investigation. These stories often reveal uncomfortable truths, truths that can lead to meaningful change. It all starts with member dollars. Not a member yet? Give today at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When it comes to mental illness, the problem of when to treat people who don't know they need treatment or people who resist treatment, it's a tough one. For decades now, compelling people into care, something called involuntary commitment, has been de-emphasized as an option and considered only as a last resort. The thinking is that the patient should have autonomy and participate in their care. But now, democratic states such as Oregon and California are reconsidering their approaches as mental health, the drug epidemic, and also homelessness become increasingly political problems. Joining us now to talk about this more are April Domboski of member station KQED in San Francisco and Amelia Templeton with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, April, I want to start with California, you know, a heavily Democratic state that over time has had this strong streak of medical autonomy. Their approach to mental illness is changing now. Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature are pushing forward with some policies that might be considered tougher to some people. Can you tell us more about what's going on here? Yeah, the attention to this has really been rooted in homelessness, which is a huge problem in California. Half of the unsheltered population in the country lives here. And even though only a quarter or a third of those folks have a serious mental illness, that is where we're seeing a lot of policy proposals being directed. So this year, the state is rolling out something called care courts. Mm -hmm. This is where a family member or a doctor can refer someone who has a psychotic illness to court, and a judge will draw up a care plan that the person is strongly encouraged to accept. Another recent proposal is to expand who qualifies for involuntary commitment. One doctor told me about a patient who's homeless who has both diabetes and schizophrenia, and he keeps cycling in and out of the emergency room because he's not taking his diabetes medication. Mm -hmm. And that's because he's not taking his antipsychotic medication. So mm -hmm. right now, doctors' hands are tied with a patient like this because yeah. being unable to take care of your own medical needs is not a reason that doctors can intervene under the current law. And that is something that they want to change. And what's been the reaction so far to these proposals? Both of them have been hugely controversial. I call it a war of compassion, actually, because both sides want to do the right thing. On one side, you've got disability rights groups saying forcing people into treatment against their will is a violation of their civil rights. You know, locking people up just for being sick, that's not compassionate. But on the other side, you've got families and doctors who say, well, what about people's right to medical care? You know, leaving someone lying on the street, unable to care for themselves, that's not compassionate either. Right. So here's how Teresa Pesquini puts it. Her son has schizophrenia, and she says the problem is doctors can only step in after a tragedy has occurred. We will no longer settle for the status quo that has forced too many of our loved ones to die with their rights on. I, I see the conflict over what values ultimately should predominate when you're talking about severely mentally ill people. And I'm wondering when you're looking at a value like compassion, 
in Oregon, Amelia, how does that value play out in this debate? Well, there's absolutely a parallel debate here over what the compassionate approach is and whether we've drawn the line in the right place for civil commitment. But the politics are a bit different. Portland's mayor, who is a moderate Democrat, has talked about loosening the criteria for civil commitment in interviews with national media. And also it's a talking point he brings up in meetings with downtown businesses that are really upset about homelessness. But in Oregon, it's really just talk. Democrats in the state legislature have not embraced the idea. Republicans have introduced several bills that would expand who could be forced into treatment, but they're very much in the minority and the bills are widely considered dead on arrival. And and why is that? Why is changing civil commitment such a non-starter in Oregon where, like in California, they're honestly considering changing it? I think a few things are still different here. First, the power to force a civil commitment in Oregon is very narrow but maybe not quite as narrow as in California. So to take one of April's examples, in Oregon, a person who is not taking diabetes medication due to psychosis, that person could be successfully civilly committed. The legislature made a small change in 2015 that makes those cases a little easier to pursue. But there's real resistance to going further. And the biggest issue by far is treatment capacity for mental illness and substance use disorders. There's just limited political interest in forcing more people into treatment when the system can barely handle the patients it has right now. Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? Well, Oregon is actually being sued by three of the largest hospital systems in the state over its failure to find placements for civilly committed patients. Because otherwise what happens is these patients are getting stuck in hospitals sometimes for months. The state has two dedicated psychiatric hospitals with about 600 beds total. And over the last decade, more of those beds have been needed for people who are in county jails, who are too mentally ill to understand the charges against them. So the result is that most civilly committed patients are denied a bed at the state hospital. And then there's no community beds either, like sending someone to a nursing home or an adult foster home or a residential treatment facility. Those beds were in really short supply already. Mm -hmm. And then in Oregon, the pandemic just gutted those places. So in Portland, for example, one of the nursing homes that suffered one of the very first devastating COVID outbreaks was a place the state had been relying on to place psychiatric patients. 28 people died and it was shut down permanently. Mm. Well, April, is this capacity problem, this question of where do you even send people for treatment, Is that a real concern in California, too? It's a huge concern and a a huge problem. Opponents of these measures are pointing out we already don't have enough treatment beds or mental health clinicians for the folks who are voluntarily asking for treatment. And then proponents of the reforms are saying, well, you know, passing these laws will put a spotlight on this and it will force a fix. So that remains to be seen. But The bigger capacity question here is really one of housing. Advocates will say homelessness is a problem caused by a lack of affordable housing, not mental illness. One doctor told me it's like musical chairs. If you have nine chairs and 10 kids, the kid with a broken leg is going to be the one left without a chair. Well, if you don't have enough housing, it's folks with mental illness who are most likely to have trouble competing in a market of scarcity. UCSF Dr. Margot Cushell told me the solution is more housing, not involuntary treatment. If you try to fix the problem of homelessness by tinkering with the healthcare system, 
we're not going to get anywhere. For the record, the same California lawmakers who are backing these new mental health reforms are also backing ways to increase the housing supply. I mean, we're talking about two states where the rents have risen so much faster than people's incomes. And that is a gap that's worse for people who are living on disability income, which can include people with mental illnesses. Here in Oregon, the new governor, Tina Kotek, says housing is her top priority. And Oregon is trying something really novel. It's the first state in the nation that will use Medicaid money to pay for things like rental assistance. So starting next year, if you're homeless and Medicaid is paying for your substance use treatment or other mental health issue, it might also pay for your housing. That was Amelia Templeton with Oregon Public Broadcasting and April Domboski with KQED in San Francisco. Both of them are part of NPR's health reporting partnership with Kaiser Health News. Thank you both so much. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Marketplace is next at 6.30. In about 10 minutes, you'll get the story on a new California law that could allow the state to fine oil companies for price gouging. And tomorrow, start your day with WBUR to get the latest on vaccines. The FDA is considering authorizing another COVID-19 booster for certain at-risk groups this spring. That's tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org tanglewood.